One of the best books I've read in the past few years is Natural Born Heroes by Chris McDougall. It's a book ostensibly telling a fascinating piece of history, how the Nazi General Kripa was peacefully but shockingly kidnapped amid swarms of Nazi soldiers occupying the Greek island of Crete in World War II. Kidnapped by a small team of British intelligence officers teamed up with local Cretan partisans. Now, on its own, it's an adventure story that is worth your while. But more than just that, the book studies conceptions and misconceptions about heroism and about health and body awareness, connecting the ancient world with our modern world in a compelling way. So I felt compelled to invite its author, Chris McDougall, to join us. And he said yes. Authors in August continues this week on Rule Breaker Investing. Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Rule Breaker Investing. LinkedIn Jobs uses knowledge of both hard and soft skills to match you with the people who fit your role the best. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash fool. Get $50 off your first job post. linkedin.com slash fool. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. You found us during August, so pleased to have you along for the ride. Pull up a chair and stay for a week or two, or a year, or four, which is what we're celebrating this month. Four straight years now in our fifth of fresh weekly podcast. No reruns, no skips here on Rule Breaker Investing. You know, we're not all about investing. Yes, we talk a lot about stocks. I pick them for you, then later we score them for you. And that's a natural for Rule Breaker Investing. But three other things I want to highlight this week that are also natural for us. For one, it's natural for us to talk about business here, too. Yours, mine, how we can make it better with a past guest like the restaurateur Danny Meyer, or talking about conscious capitalism, or how you can market better with my friend and past guest Seth Godin. So, yeah, it's natural for us to talk about business, too. And then, second, life. Because how can we possibly speak most helpfully and most authoritatively for you about investing and about business if we're not also reflecting as fellow travelers along the path of life? Fellow fools. So, yes, it's natural to talk about life. And third, this week is a new natural for this podcast because as part of our annual Authors in August series, I have the pleasure of being joined by a new fool friend, Chris McDougall, who thinks a lot about natural things, nature, human nature, uh, the natural method, and heroism. His book, Natural Born Heroes, is a natural fit for this podcast. So I'm delighted to share with you this week Chris McDougall and his book, Natural Born Heroes. I'm excited to welcome Christopher McDougall on today's episode of Rule Breaker Investing. Chris is an acclaimed journalist, sought after speaker, best selling author whose work centers on human potential. His published writings include books like Natural Born Heroes, which is the primary focus of our conversation this week, but also Born to Run, a book that's currently, I think, being made into a feature film that might or might not be starring Matthew McConaughey. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Chris's forthcoming book, which is entitled Running with Sherman. It's out this October. It dives into the lost art of animal-human partnerships by telling the true life story of running a 15-mile race alongside a rescue donkey. In addition to his written work, Chris has also been credited with starting a modern sportswear movement, also known as barefoot running. So, Chris, thank you very much for joining us today on Rule Breaker Investing. Oh, happy to be here. So, Chris, the book I'm focused on, as I mentioned, is your 2015 Natural Born Heroes, since that's the one I've read and so enjoyed. Now, I've mentioned this to our listeners for a few weeks, so I know some will have read it, but for those who haven't yet gotten to enjoy Natural Born Heroes, can you present maybe the premise and perhaps just a little bit of the plot? Yeah, you know, the whole thing sparked from a weird incident that occurred during World War II, and I, I discovered it by accident. When I was researching Born to Run, I just threw the net as wide as I could for any book, any written references to long-distance running I could find. And I came across this book called The Cretan Runner. So I bought it sort of sight unseen off Amazon. And then when it showed up, I skimmed through it and realized, oh, this doesn't pertain to running at all. This is a World War II book. <laughs> and it was the story. It was a true-life story about a Greek shepherd named George Sikandakis. And the day that the Germans invaded the island of Crete, 
Well, you know, it's interesting because Crete is the only place where the resistance began literally the day the Germans arrived. So this shepherd named George Sikandakis, as paratroopers are literally wafting down over the island, he ran off, joined the resistance, and became a foot messenger for the underground for the next four years. And, you know, it's kind of an interesting tale. It didn't really pertain to Born to Run. But as I read into it, I realized, man, what this dude was doing would kill an Olympic athlete. This guy would leave a cave with a message, run 50 miles through the mountains, stay off the trails, because mm. if you're spotted by the Germans, you're dead. He would arrive at a cave, deliver a message, get the reply, and then turn around and run back. And I'm thinking, this dude just did 100 miles off-road in the dark in the mountains on almost no food. Like, how do you physically do that? And the more I researched, the more stories similar to George Sikandakis's I found. So it just sort of led me down this road to questioning, is this dude like an X-Man mutant? Is, does he have some other, like, DNA that's separate than ours? Or is he the same as we are, except he's somehow treating his body differently? And that's what basically led me to Natural Born Heroes. And a lot of people love your work for your emphasis on running, on fitness, and I would say human potential, Chris. And we're definitely going to get to that a little later on. But staying with the major theme of the book, I loved your emphasis on heroism. So you present a bunch of different heroes in the book. Heck, there's the word right there in the title, Natural Born Heroes. And they run the gamut um, most memorably. Could you maybe share a little bit about the life of Patrick Lee Fermer, whom a BBC journalist once called, quote, a cross between Indiana Jones, James Bond, and Graham Greene, end quote, the novelist. This is, this is an amazing guy. And I think he harkens back to the sense of what we considered normal for humans. You know, it's, it's uh, kind of a little bit depressing that we look at a guy like Patty Lee Fermer as an outlier today, because I think he looked at himself as being just what you're supposed to do. And of his times, he was perhaps a little more extraordinary just because he was more swashbuckling and good-looking and more of a ladies' man uh, than, than the other dudes. But as far as his behavior, he was really keeping in with that, that old British tradition of giving of yourself. So Patrick Lee Fermer, it, it, it's interesting because in some ways, World War II was like the best thing that ever happened to him. He uh, was thrown out of multiple schools. He tried military academy, thrown out of military academy. He was such an embarrassment to his family that he packed up uh, a rucksack, and he decided he was just going to walk. So he left from Holland and started walking toward the, the, the ancient country of Constantinople. And so hmm. he just basically walked across Europe. So at, at the lowest point of a pretty insubstantial life, World War II breaks out. And because he's really not suited to be a normal soldier, he ends up in the underground. He ends up as a resistance fighter, and he was planted behind enemy lines. And behind enemy lines, he flourished because he had a, drear, a flair for the dramatic. Uh, he, he was used to roughing it. He could charm anybody. He could put on disguises. And so working behind enemy lines, the guy was a blazing success. So successful that he came up with kind of a, a stupid plan his plan was rather than us trying to like fight toe-to-toe with german soldiers why don't we just fight with one of them why don't we just go behind enemy lines kidnap the commanding general and take him on the run and <laughs> that had never been tried in military history before for the obvious reason it's just it's suicide but patty lee Fermer didn't know any better and that became his claim to fame he wanted to become the first guy in military history to kidnap and escape with a commanding general. And part of what happened, and you tell the story so well, is it's that partnership between sort of the British intelligence officers, he and his partner Moss, but working together with George Sikandakis and other of the Cretan partisans to partner to do that. And the kidnapping itself was nonviolent, and it all came at me as somebody who didn't know the history as a great surprise that that had ever happened before, and the way in which it done was almost gentle and almost whimsical with a, sh- a show of wit. Yeah, that's sort of the sad thing, David, is that, you know, victors write history, and because the U.S. spearheaded the, the D-Day invasion, those are the stories we like to tell. We like to tell the stories of, you know, General Patton and, you know, crushing them with our tanks. But at the same time, it was the resistance fighters who were ingeniously slowing up and distracting the German forces. There is a very valid argument to be made 
that because of the Cretan resistance, that's the reason why the Germans lost. And the reason why is because, you know, the Germans just blasted through Western Europe in a matter of days. They destroyed every army in their way. And the only thing standing between them and world domination, really, was Russia. All they had to do was topple Moscow, and they would have been an unstoppable force. And there's no way the U.S. would have tackled uh, Hitler at that point. If Hitler had command of the Red Army in all Western Europe, you know, what's the U.S. going to show up on those shores? So the, the crucial thing was preventing Hitler from conquering Russia. And the only thing that slowed him down were these partisans, were these civilians on the Greek island of Crete. And they held Hitler up for a crucial one-month period. And at that one-month period, they got Hitler into Russia in the winter instead of in the summer, as he intended. If he'd gotten there on schedule, he would have been there in June. Who knows? His, his uh, trust would have been rolling into Moscow and St. Petersburg, and the Red Army was a joke, so he would have conquered them. And so, again, it's, it's a really curious fact that this sleight of hand perpetrated by the Cretan resistance really might have been instrumental to winning the war. And it is a remarkable story. Our Operation Barbarossa ultimately undoing Hitler and changing the course of history and the way that you connect these things really fun and eye-opening for me. Now, there are many heroes in your book, Chris, from the original Greek concept illustrated maybe in the person of Odysseus to more the modern-day Cretans themselves. But in telling the story of Pennsylvania schoolteacher Narina Benzel, you assert that heroism is a skill, not a virtue. Could you, could you explain? You know, it's, it's funny, David. I have trouble telling her story because... Uh, I keep like tearing up and getting like chills when I tell it. Um, it's so, it's so unique in a way because she was so unsuited for the job and knew it and did it anyway. Mm. Um, but Norita Benzel was the principal of an elementary school out near where I live. I live here in very rural Pennsylvania and her school out near Red Lion, Pennsylvania is almost, you know, as you can imagine it, it is a tiny schoolhouse surrounded by cornfields. It is countryside in every direction. You can see Amish horse and buggies rolling by. And, you know, one day, Norena Benzel was in her office, and she noticed a, a guy sort of fumbling around the door. And, you know, regrettably, this is an era. Um, times have changed since then. But now we know when you see a guy fumbling around the door, it's probably going to be something devious and, and, and bloody. But at the time, that wasn't known. So she saw this gentleman fumbling around the door and assumed this was a parent who didn't know to buzz the door to uh, enter the school. So she walked down to see what he's doing. Before she got there, someone else opened the door for him, and this guy pulls out a machete and starts going after the kindergartners. So now, Marina Benzel was in her 50s at that point, and small woman, she's about five foot two, five foot three. And you have a army veteran with an edged weapon coming at you with murder in his eyes. And I have to tell you, I'm six foot four, 200 pounds. I can't promise you what I would do under the circumstances. Mm. But uh, she didn't hesitate. You know, she put herself in front of that, that man. And he kept coming at her. And several times she fended um, him off, got the kindergartners to safety. And then when she tried to barricade herself behind a door, he came barreling in. And she changed the course of what could have been a mass killing by doing something really remarkable. As she is, you know, slashed across the arms and chest and in danger of losing um, her own blood to the point of dying, she collapsed to the ground. He thought she was dead. So when his attention turned to somebody else, she jumps up leaps on his back and just embraces him in a hug and just held him in a hug. And she, she must have known that there's no way she's going to overpower this guy with this hug. And I really believe what she was just trying to transmit with a sense of physical warmth. It doesn't have to be this way. And he just dropped the machete and stopped. So she saved every single life in that building that day. I know she lost, a, any she lost a couple of fingers and about half her blood, I think you wrote, in the book, retelling that chilling, uh, though inspiring tale. And Chris, the point that you make about that story and the way you hook it into Natural Born Heroes is to say that heroism is not a virtue. Uh, you're not walking around and you're a hero. It's actually 
in a way, a skill or a set of skills that are available to everybody. Could you just double underline that? Yes, and to me, that's the real lesson here. And I think it's something we have unfortunately lost sight of. You know, we look at heroes today as, you know, who's the biggest, baddest dude kicking down the door with the biggest howitzer on his arms? You know, we look at, at heroes as being the other people, uh, that you are, you are a hero by virtue of birth, and you either are or you're not. But I, I think evolutionarily, we have a much different truth at our disposal. I think humans, by our DNA, are naturally sharing creatures. Uh, our species is excellent at basically two things, at adapting and at cooperating. That's, that's the story, the story of, mm. of human history. We adapt and we cooperate. We see something and we improve upon it, and then we share that information with others. And that's how it's always been. One guy discovers fire. Hey, look at this fire. It's great. Someone else figures out, hey, we can store this fire. Let's let everybody know that there's a way of transmitting this, this uh, life-saving substance. So that's what we do. And what I think is emblematic throughout human history is we've taken this notion of adapting and sharing and turned it into a protective mechanism, basically the art of the hero. And every single culture throughout history has taken that art of the hero and adapted and taught it and passed it down to the other generations. Unfortunately, it's something we've kind of lost because rather than telling everybody, hey, you're responsible for everyone around you, instead we've outsourced all that. So it used to be, you know, with the ancient Greeks, there was no police force, there was no fire department, there, there was no hospitals. So if someone was in trouble, you had to know how to treat them medically. You had to know how to defend them and yourself. You had to know how to find food and put out a fire. You had to be this natural-born hero. Unfortunately, today, we just basically pick up our phones, and, you know, you have a problem with your sink, you call a plumber. You know, you don't, we don't really know how to do anything anymore. We don't put out fires or apprehend criminals. We just outsource it to someone else. And I think that's, that was the thing that someone like Marina Bensel understood immediately that in a crisis, the person to step up is always going to be her. You know, part of me thinks that this is, in a way, a good thing, right? The division of labor, which is part of economic history, suggests that, hey, if Chris, you're six foot four, 200, you should uh, reach up and grab things, and I'm just five, ten and a half, and maybe I should be the guy who takes it from you and stores it. And so, in a way, you know, somebody's good at stock picking, another is good at writing, the list goes on. We should all specialize up to a point. But I know you, you're speaking, I think, from a farm, so I don't know if it's fair to call you a farmer, but it seems to me part of the farmer's mentality is that you do need to know a little bit, at least, it seems to me, about lots of different things. So I guess I'm kind of torn between the benefits of division of labor as it's suited capitalism, but also that maybe 19th century or you would say 2,000 years ago mentality of being able to do everything. I think the difference comes down to not having to do everything, but being able to do everything. Mm. Uh, knowledge, skill, and desire. And I think, unfortunately, what we've robbed ourselves of is the belief in ourselves that we can do this. And to me, the, you know, the art of the hero, and you can sort of tra- again, trace this back to ancient Greece, it was based on three things, strength, skill, and desire. It's you know, the physical ability to do something, the tactile sense where you can do something, and also the desire, the, mm. the willingness to the... the, the sense that it's important to you to make others feel good. And I'm really fortunate where I live isn't just among farmers, but it's among Amish farmers. And they are, you know, a true living throwback to the 1700s. And also, I think, a very misunderstood culture. They have a sense of, uh, or an image of being sort of dour and standoffish and aloof. And the truth is the exact opposite. The Amish are very warm, friendly because they don't have screens in front of them. They're natural storytellers. They love to like gab and chat and gossip. And one thing is they are super quick to lend a hand, and they can do freaking everything, anything. <laughs> and so I'm literally standing on a porch that my neighbors helped me throw up in a matter of like 14 hours That's mm. uh, how fast they put this together. Mm. And so I think the thing about it is what the Amish have preserved, that unfortunately the rest of us have forgotten, is it's not so much that we have to do everything, but we should want to do everything. So even though I'm the tall guy that can get the you know frosted flakes off the top shelf, <laughs> there's nothing stopping you from doing. You know you should sort of want to do it for yourself as well. Now, if I can point out one more thing too, there's an interesting revelation which has come, believe it or not, from like mixed martial arts fighting. And you know, it used to be we felt that like 
the George Foreman's, you know, like the 340-pound bruiser was the guy who would win a fight. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you got these, like, 190, you know, 110-pound Brazilians show up who are choking people out. And what they taught us is we do have the ability as long as we have the desire and the skill. Mm, so well put and strongly agreed. And it is worth noting that the I think the Greek word uh, heros meant protector. So we yeah. use the word hero, but underneath that, the lineage of the term, the etymology, goes right back to protector and protection and protecting those around you, which reminds me at one point you surprised me again in the book, Chris, when you said that at the heart of heroism is a surprising word, for some at least it did surprise me, compassion. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a really interesting thing. When you look at Greek mythology, I think you know we have Hollywoodized Greek mythology into being the tales of uh, you know, ripping open your chest and throwing thunderbolts and and being, you know, muscle-bound bruisers. But when you actually look at Greek mythology, almost always it's about people helping out. It's about someone in trouble and someone else feeling like your problem is my problem and I'm going to step in and help you. And I think that is really gets back to that idea of human existence in the sense of cooperation, this mm. idea that if you can see yourself in somebody else, that's the beginning of all understanding. It's the beginning of all cooperation and and greatness and i think that's what even in the way the heroes and the greek gods would um transform themselves you know it was was common for the gods to take on another form Mm -hmm. and the whole idea being that you're literally putting yourself into someone else's skin and if you do that suddenly see the world through their eyes and again unfortunately it's a thing that we've been taught recently is a sign of weakness and and not something that's beneficial to your own well-being. But I think if we take a step back and realize the more we can understand the need to cooperate and have compassion, the, the better we're all going to be. Hmm. Well, I should mention, Chris, your book was first recommended to me by my friend Evan De Silva. He and I are both in admiration of your writer's craft, so evident in Natural Born Heroes. Specifically, uh, you managed to weave together historical facts and an adventure tale and Visits with modern-day health gurus and the background behind parkour, and you even enter this story yourself at a few points, and the list goes on. So what could have been a crazy mishmash totally works, and I found it so compelling. So I guess two questions about this. The first is, how do you keep track of all the material you want to put in the book and then know what to include or leave out? I think, unfortunately, the leaving out part rarely comes into play. <laughs> you know, although I see, I'm kind of patting myself on the back because... My um, my current book is coming out this October called Running with Sherman. As part of my education in how to train a donkey to become a running partner, I visited with a woman who raises uh, zebras. I thought, you know, if this woman can, like, domesticate zebras, then I should have no problem with a donkey. And in the final product of the book, I told myself, you just can't segue to the zebra girl in Michigan. It just does not. There's no way. It's too much of a stretch. <laughs> so for the first time, in my literary career, I actually decided <laughs> to exercise some discipline. With Natural with Born Heroes, however, I, I felt that the strands really knitted together pretty well because I had two things I was looking at. You know, one specifically was this adventure story of this band of jabronis, you know, this, this gang of misfits on an island trying to kidnap a general overlooking the fact that once you get them, where are you going to go? Because you're on an island. You know, like, you're going to run in a circle. At some point, you're going to run out of island. Telling that story, and at the same time, trying to look back through history and see whether what they were doing corresponds to what humans have done throughout time. And I guess the reason I wanted to do that is because, to me, you know, fads and trends have no currency unless they've got some kind of lineage. You know, if you can show me a pedigree, where let me give you an example for instance mm-hmm. like a, a um uh like like a paleolithic diet you know if you want to look at going to a uh, carbohydrate free diet well you got to have to show me decade after decade where it's been tried and, and successful otherwise mm-hmm. i'm not interested or if you want to explain to me why uh, natural movement is a way more valid way to exercise than uh, machine based uh, weight resistance 
you have to show me dating back hundreds of years how this has worked. And if you can, then, then I'm interested. All right, so assembling all of these different thoughts, um, everything from, again, modern fitness ideas, some quackery as well, right back to ancient Greek thinking about heroes, and then, oh, by the way, a World War II occupation of Crete in the middle. Um, it sounds as if you are able to just kind of mostly include it all and balance it out, and you have experience, I know, as a longtime journalist with that on your own. Let me, though, ask my second question, which is, I guess, a little bit more about your process. So, any other reflections or thoughts about your own writing process specifically, and, and maybe a tip or two for other writers? Well, you know, it's funny. I was at a conference at Harvard University, and I was going to be on, on a stage with uh, Professor Dan Lieberman, who's an evolutionary biologist, and Dr. John Rady, who's a specialist in attention deficiency. And right before we're going to go on stage, I'm chatting with Rady. I was meeting him for the first time, and he makes this comment. He's like, well, I'm sure you know, you struggling with ADHD. It must have been very difficult in school. And I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm not ADHD. <laughs> And he just kind of looks at me with this kind of like pitying look in his eyes, like, oh, oh yeah, you are. And at that, at that moment, I felt like, oh, everything makes so much sense now. Um, I think the thing about it was my attention goes all over the place. So the trick is trying to figure out how you can fit it all down, like into the same sausage. So what I usually do with any project, no matter if it's 2,000 words or 100,000 word book, is I just get a big chunk of poster board and I just break it down into a big old graph, you know, I make it into a chart, a, a grid. And then I figure, okay, where am I starting and where am I finishing? So for Natural Born Heroes, for instance, it was pretty easy. Okay, well, I'm starting with the disappearance of the general. You know, it's starting with the beginning of the kidnapping and it's ending with the resolution. You know, either they get them off the island or they end up in front of a firing squad. So there's my beginning, there's my, there's my end. I personally can't stand science. Anything involving like numbers, equations, uh, <laughs> degrees, you know, PhDs, uh, I, I snored through school. And so for me, that stuff always has to go in the second half of the book. It's got to go in the back nine of the golf course. Um, <laughs> so I put that. I always put that stuff in the second half. And the first half to me is going to be almost always as much drama, sizzle, and excitement as I can muster. Mm. And that's it. And I chart it out, and then I figure out where are all my topics. So I want to get in. Uh, the history of weight machines and how Teddy Roosevelt used to work out with his fighting rings. And then kind of look out, okay, where would this go? So kind of go here. And that's it's basically it. It's, it's assembling a board game. Mm. Super fun to hear that. All right, I'm going to call that about halftime on this interview. So... Hiring isn't as simple as putting an ad in the paper or posting to a job board. Nope. When you're juggling hiring with everything it takes to grow your business, it's important you reach the right candidates at the right time. That's where LinkedIn comes in. Right here at The Motley Fool, we have used LinkedIn searching for qualified candidates for years. Over 600 million members visit LinkedIn to make connections, learn, and grow as professionals and discover new job opportunities. And that's how they make sure your job post gets in front of people with the right hard skills and soft skills to meet your role requirements. And more than 35 million job seekers visit LinkedIn jobs every month. To get $50 off your first job post, go to linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply $50 off your first job post, linkedin.com slash fool. So, let's let's transition a little bit now from the book to the body, which is obviously another, uh, I would say it's an uber theme. It seems to reach across your books. And so, um, one section of Natural Born Heroes features Georges Hébert and his natural method. Now, it's a story you tell memorably in the book, but it's, it's a name, a bear that I had never heard of before, a part of history lost, I won't say to us, but it, at least to me. And, and yet now I know, thanks to you. So, Chris, can you, can you recreate a bit of that here for us? Tell a bear's story, explain la méthode naturelle, and then what we should learn from it. I just want to make you say that all the time. I've never <laughs> pronounced it as beautifully as you have. Well, you know, David, I think you hit on something that was a real eye-opener for me. This actually happened when I was researching Born to Run. You know, the genesis of Born to Run was discovering that there's this tribe that can run hundreds of miles in these like thin little homemade sandals, and they're doing this at like, age 70, age 80. 
And at the time, you know, I was, uh, you know, 200 some pound guy and I was always getting hurt running. And doctors said, well, it's because you're a 200 pound guy, dude. Of course you're getting hurt running. All that impact is bad for you. The revelation to me was discovering that actually, no, that there's no reason why humans can't run long distances. And it made me really question all of the conventional sort of sports medicine advice and physiology had always been fed. And when that happened, it made me take a critical eye to almost everything I'd ever heard mm. about any kind of nutrition or physiology or training or exercise. And that became really the sort of the, the cycle of all of my books was, if someone said this is true, well, let's, let's take a closer look. And what happened with um, the natural method, the methode natural, and this guy, Georges Hebert, Georges Hebert was a French naval officer, and he was stationed off the coast of Martinique when the volcano began to explode. And Georges Hebert then jumps into a rescue boat, and he steams toward the island, hoping he can save people's lives. And what he saw was really distressing and traumatic for him because people were dying when they didn't have to. Little things were stopping them, so people couldn't swim 20 yards out to the boat. They couldn't pull themselves up a rope you know, to get into the boat. They couldn't like lift a kid they were struggling to carry, even though the child may have only weighed 40 pounds, but they couldn't pick the child up, and they're being uh, slowed down and held behind. And he's looking around at all these things and thinking, what, what happened to us? What happened to us as a species where we can't do the simple physical skills which we need to survive? So he went back to France, and he did a testing of other uh, French naval personnel, and he realized nobody could do this stuff. Like, to get the average person to elevate themselves five feet off the ground, they just couldn't do it. And so what he decided to do was create a fitness method based on what he believed were the 10 elements of natural human survival. And it was just little things like uh, walking, crawling, jumping, climbing, uh, self-defense, swimming, diving. He created just 10 very basic natural movements. And instead of having a gym full of, like, Nautilus machines and free weights, he created these giant, like, obstacle courses. And he encouraged people to just get out and experiment with their bodies. And he had one key element, which is no competition. No competition. Because the second you worry about what the other guy's doing, you defeat the purpose. And that became this, this magnificent form of training, which, unfortunately, all but died out. Uh, during the First World War, but has been recently become uh, revived again, largely in the form of parkour. And it all ended in World War One, as you write, because the amazing people, who were really just normal people who entered his school but became amazing, were typically leaders and on the front lines in World War One. And so all of his students, and I can't remember, Hebert himself basically got wiped out by World War One. Yeah, a bear survived, uh, but uh, largely incapacitated, lost the use of one arm, and uh, was severely battered and uh, infirm. And yeah, unfortunately, you know, we took the, the best and brightest, and they just sort of fed them right into the machine guns. Unfortunately, it's one of the sad artifacts of our training is that when we actually train someone to be a hero, usually that's the first person we sacrifice. Mm. And so the ideas, the natural method itself, kind of left the earth, but then have started to enjoy a renaissance, and you do tell some of the story of parkour, and while I have absolutely no background in it, I have to admit I was inspired enough by starting to look around the Washington, D.C. area, and I saw that there is kind of an outdoor course in Rock Creek Park for anybody in the greater D.C. area listening in. Of course, we're reaching people all around the planet, but whoever you are, fellow human, I hope nearby there's an opportunity for you to uh, get in some of the natural movements that we've kind of forgotten about, crawling, jumping, these kinds of things that, Chris, you do a really good job reminding us about their importance. Yeah, David, this is a really fascinating topic sometimes to debate on The Motley Fool, what is the most economically, fiscally responsible way to promote exercise? Because if you look at the example of something like CrossFit or obstacle course racing, you know, with Spartan and Tough Mudder, there was this golden era of, of purity where there was no competition, there was no prize money, there's no television. And all kinds of people like rushed out and were trying their hand at it. And then money enters the scene mm. and the sports boom 
But to me, the integrity is gone forever. It becomes about really sort of separating people into the, you know, better or worse. And parkour has always resisted that. There are no parkour games. And I actually was asking one of the top parkour teachers about the, the debate about competition. He's like, there is no debate. There is no competition ever. And unfortunately, that's why I think you see the parkour has remained largely an invisible sport, whereas other sports who have become televised and offer big prize money have, have boomed. And so the question with parkour is, as you mentioned, D.C. is a great parkour community. The idea, though, is that you're there to learn an art. Art is never about prizes. Art is never about competition. But if you can join up with a parkour community, I think what you're going to find is exactly that sense of compassion kinship, fellowship, and artistry that um, we were talking about with the, the art of the natural hero. And you've spent personal time there yourself, and you share some of that in the book. And of course, I already have like four more interesting questions to get to, and we're going to start running out of time, so we're never going to cover it all. But let me go back to something you said just a little while ago, because you talked about challenging conventional wisdom in and around health in the, in the context that you were introducing. Now, of course, Rule breaker investing and kind of what we do here at The Fool, even calling ourselves The Motley Fool, obviously shows a kindred spirit. We like to challenge conventional wisdom. That's what fools do. So, Chris, I'm curious about this. There are lots of ideas. There are whole books, there are diets, communities, there are ways of life about health and body awareness. And some of them are vanilla, you know, traditional and probably mostly right. Some of them are absolutely whacked. And some of them, at first sound whacked, but end up being forward-thinking, progressive, coming from people living before their time. So, I guess my question is, you're writing about some of them, and I know a lot of your own work and your focus on fitness tries to seek out the best ideas and challenge conventional wisdom, even if it sounds a little crazy, but how do you know if and when you're right? And Do you ever get sidetracked by something or someone who is actually truly crazy? I don't think so. But of course, you know the crazy guy never thinks he's crazy, right? Uh, the crazy guy thinks he's the sanest guy on the on the field. But here's what I look for all, all the time, and and I think this is this is the kind of thing that to me is almost a bulletproof system. Uh, show me the lineage, you mm-hmm. know. Show me the ancestry. And taking for, looking for instance at diet, if no matter what kind of like magic protein shake system you have now. If you can't show it to me again and again and again, dating back thousands of years, then I doubt you. And I'm going to want to see your science, and even then I'm going to doubt it. Uh, what I looked at with um, in Born to Run, when I was looking at running shoes, you know, it's just taking this conventional wisdom. you got to have good running shoes. You open up Runner's World, any running magazine, that's the first thing to tell you. Go to a running specialty store. Have your gait analyzed. And make sure you get the right running shoes. So, like, well, running shoes were only invented in, like, 1978. People have been running for three million years. So what were they doing before the invention of the running shoe? There is no lineage to the running shoe, but there is lineage for running form. And you can go back throughout history and see the same highly efficient, very uh, impact-free running form. And so to me, like, I, I can prove to you why running form is important. You can't prove to me why running shoes are important. Mm. So that, that's basically what I look for. I'm looking for ancestry. And that makes a lot of sense. Now, obviously, sometimes we do come up with new ideas, new insights. Think about something like genomics, where we all of a sudden have a new realization about science that leads to profound gains, I hope. Uh, I think we all have big hopes for genomics. But I I get you on the lineage. Now, we have a a longtime fool analyst here and a a marathon runner many times, uh, Seth Jason, my friend. And he wanted me to ask you this. So, Seth, just providing his own perspective, said, you know, barefoot running has been thinning out some. The industry pretty quickly embraced what he calls the maximal shoe. That's probably the technical term, but I'm out of my, I'm a fish out of water here. Pioneered by Hoka. And even Nike, Seth said, in its attempts to create a sub two marathon world record, used a modified maximal shoe with a lot of lightweight foam and a carbon fiber plate to stiffen it. So maximal shoes, big seller for the shoe companies, especially Decker's, which I guess owns Hoka. He, he just said, what does Chris think about these developments? Yeah, he's absolutely right, um, that the industry has embraced Maximal. And there's a reason for that, because they're an industry, and they're selling a new product. They're selling something that looks cool, looks dramatic, and is visually appealing. The difficulty we've always had is that things that work involve education, and education ain't sexy, and you can't buy it. Um, the things that don't work are things that you can buy, 
and look really cool and look different. And the fact that they look different to me automatically makes them suspicious. So the difficulty, I think, with going with um, any kind of a minimalist approach to anything means that there's going to be adaptation period and there's nothing, there's no toy. There's no thing you can buy. So that's unfortunately been difficult with something like barefoot running because you can't buy it. You're, you, you're pre-equipped to go barefoot. But the running shoe companies get behind something like the Hocus because they look really super cool. And there's a new one every six months. And um, they can make a lot of money off of them. Mm. Which, do you begrudge it of them or not? Yeah, I really do, unfortunately, because, you know, I try to be egalitarian in the sense of like, hey, let everyone, you know, float their own boat and make a living. Mm -hmm. But the reason I'm, I'm distressed by this sense of pushing gimmickry and gadgets is because it leaves people feeling that they can't do something. Mm. The message from the running shoe industry for the past 30 years has been that running is dangerous, that you're going to get hurt unless you buy the right thing. And to me, it's a really destructive message. It's, it's fear-based economics. If you don't buy this thing, you're going to get hurt. It's like mafia-style you know, like mafia marketing. Mm. If you don't cooperate with us, you're going to get hurt. And to me, that's a really negative thing. Instead of a message of joyfulness and universality, like, hey, we're all equipped to do this. We're all born and run. You just got to learn how, and you're good to go. Well, that, that mentality fits so well, certainly with The Motley Fool, because we've faced kind of a similar thing. The idea is that you know investing is just too complicated. You can't do this yourself. You shouldn't do this yourself. Whereas I was raised in a tradition, a family tradition, of just buying stocks directly and just finding great companies and, and doing really well, by the way, by patiently holding them over periods of time and beating up on Wall Street, which has largely put out the message that you can't do this. It's too complicated for you. And so, as a consequence, it seems like you're an odd duck these days if you're an investor who would buy stocks directly. Now, I sure hope our company is reversing that. I'm going to ask you about a public company in a sec. I'd be interested in your take on them. But I like that rhetorical question you asked earlier. What is the most economically, fiscally responsible way to do exercise? That's a, that's a beautiful question. And it's, it's one I, I struggle with. You know, people enjoy like soul cycle and they enjoy going to the gym but at the same time if you actually look at the numbers gym memberships surge like crazy in january mm-hmm. everyone makes a resolution and then they plummet by easter and the gyms notice and they make their money off of it they way oversubscribe their gyms every year knowing that two-thirds of the people are going to quit and not show up anymore so essentially, if everybody belonged to a gym actually showed up, there's no way they fit them in the wall. So mm-hmm. to me, again, they're taking advantage of a weakness in people's mentality. Instead of giving them what they need, they're giving them what they can sell. Well, I'm curious then, because the public company I wanted to ask you about has been a raging winner on the stock market. Uh, full disclosure, this is an active recommendation of mine within our Rule Breakers service, and it's Planet Fitness. I know it's a brand that you would recognize. So, on the one hand, I hear you kind of criticizing them because you're saying, hey, these are like um, poster child maybe for lots of people signing up and then not as many people still showing up in August. But then, on the other hand, the Planet Fitness brand is kind of going in the direction you're talking about, where it's for every man, it's for every fool, everybody can join. There aren't big weight machines, no lunks, all that kind of marketing, democratizing the idea of staying in shape. What, what are, what's your take on Planet Fitness? I think that uh, it's a flavor of the day. You know, um, there's going to be something else that's going to come along that at some point is going to blow it away. There's even another fitness fad. I, I look at it as a fad. You know, Arthur, Arthur Jones is the guy who created the uh, Nautilus machine. And the reason why he created the Nautilus machine is not because it was better for fitness. It was because you could put more people in rabbit cages. That You could actually put people in a little sort of conveyor belt and move them in a tightly confined space. It wasn't actually improving their fitness. It was actually improving his bottom line. So... You know, I'm sort of torn between what I feel is best and what I feel may be most profitable. Hmm. Planet Fitness may be a very profitable enterprise. I feel as far as people's health is concerned, it's not really doing a great job at all. Well, fair enough. And you would know more about this than somebody like me. But I'll at least say the spirit of inclusion and a sense that I can do this too, I would say is at the heart of their brand. Um, and at least I can relate to that on a human level and along the lines of what we're talking about in this conversation. Certainly, The Motley Fool saying, hey, you can invest. You should invest. It's going to be really good for you and take the long-term approach. But, but you're absolutely right, Chris, especially when you start creating competitions 
all of a sudden only the people who are most competitive and doing well are still playing. It's kind of like chess among adults. The few people that I know that still would say they play chess are pretty doggone good at chess, and all the rest of us don't really play chess or other kind of youthful diversions that probably shouldn't be so youthful. Yeah, you know, it's funny. As I'm talking, I'm starting to feel like an old sour person. I've got nothing good to say about anybody, do I? You know, I'm, just, I'm here to complain about everything, but you, you, you really zeroed in on the idea. And I think the, the difficulty I have with the gym concept is, you know, what I like is fun. I like recess, man. I want that bell to ring and run outside <laughs> and just get sweaty and, and, and tear up my knees for 40 minutes until I got to get stuck back into a classroom again. And to me, I don't see that in gyms. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't see a sense of fun. I see a more sense of uh, punishment. You know, like uh, I ate the double taco for lunch. I better go to Planet Fitness and mm. lift something unpleasant for 40 minutes. And so I think where exercise works is where it gets that sense of fun, abandoned recklessness and joy. Love it. And uh, so more playgrounds, fewer gyms. I vote for that. And playgrounds aren't just for kids, by the way. Adult playgrounds sound really good to me. Chris, before we move on, I do have a good friend, Peter Varley, here at The Motley Fool, and he's run five marathons. He's inspired by your your work. Uh, he didn't go barefoot, but he takes some pride in his Vibram five-finger shoes, you know, those shoes that have like a finger for each of your toes. Now, I'm assuming that's not really your favorite thing, but is that better than the Nike shoes and not quite as good as barefoot running, the five-finger shoes? Oh, no, the five fingers are fantastic. The five fingers are a great tool. See, my, my thinking with shoes is, is the same as my thinking with clothes, that it's good for, for protection. So if it's cold out, I wear a coat. You know, if it's hot out, I wear <laughs> a pair of board shorts. And, and it's similar with, with uh, running shoes. If I'm running on crushed stone or something, I'm going to want to have something underfoot. The difficulty with running shoes was when we thought we could outthink Mother Nature, you know, like we went from protection, which is awesome, into cor- correction where we suck. Uh, we put in, like motion control and excessive cushioning. So the five fingers are fantastic. My favorite product of all those, my, my buddy Barefoot Ted created a pair of minimalist sandals based on a design taught to him by a Tatumata tribesman when we were down in the Copper Canyon. And I just love the fact that he was like totally Indiana Jones and like taking the secret from the bottom <laughs> of the canyon and turning it into a chew. But yeah, man, the five fingers actually, I think were hugely effective and instrumental in getting people to try minimalist running. You know, they're actually trying to revive. They just did a major push. I saw a story, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal recently, that Five Fingers is kind of rebooting and, and repushing. So I think they're, we're going to see a Five Finger revival sometime soon. Well, we're starting to run out of time, Chris, but let me let me ask you, my friend Evan, who I mentioned earlier, um, has read your previous book, Born to Run. It sounds like it may become a motion picture. At least on IMDb, I'm seeing an entry for Born to Run as a movie. Is that a thing? That's a thing. Um, yeah, so they got script financing, and actually, last word was uh, McConaughey was replaced by Woody Harrelson, who's supposed to be playing uh, Caballo Blanco, Micah True, who is the uh, the hero of Born to Run. So, uh, where it is in terms of like cameras roll, I don't know. But my last update was script financing and star. So fingers crossed. You know. Well, you've done your part. You wrote the book, and I know at that point others take over with scripts and selling, and who knows what gets made when. But I, I, I guess we're breaking some news then on this podcast. It sounds like Woody Harrelson should be copied and pasted over. Uh, over Matthew McConaughey on the IMDb page for it. But anyway, getting back to the actual question. Um, so my friend Evan, I thought it was a pretty great question. He said, um, would would Chris discuss the pros and cons of sharing the story of the Tarahumara Indians in Mexico, the subject of Born to Run, instead of, instead of keeping it a secret? So you could have kept it a secret. Were you nervous that the increased attention to the culture might possibly ruin it. I mean, what if people from our society inevitably go there, curious, the Tarahumara might learn to work for money, they start to buy things, basically maintain only enough of their culture to keep tourists interested, rather than truly living their culture. So, has that happened in any way? How do you navigate the ethics or thinking about that? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a really good question. It's actually something specifically that I wrestled with. And it actually happened several times, even with natural-born heroes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris and Pete White, the two brothers who were able to recreate the escape route of the uh, the kidnappers, were very leery, very cautious about sharing the details of that route because they didn't want it to turn into some tourist attraction and become ruined by, by tramping feet. Mm. With the Tarahumara specifically, 
I had some long conversations with Micah True, and the agreement we basically came to, and his feeling all along was, the more attention this coach can get, the better. Uh, they had tried to live in secrecy for a very long time and were successful for a long time. But then there was a game changer, and that was the drug cartels. Because the area where they live in the remote canyons, it's a good place to become a secretive Indian tribe. It's also a really good place to raise nar- uh, illegal narcotics and be, uh, be uh, hidden from the police. Mm. And so the cartels have taken over the Copper Canyon. And if you have a pacifistic tribe of super athletes, they are a really handy source of sweat equity. So essentially they were press ganging Tabamada into being uh, physical uh, carriers for them, carrying drugs up out of the canyons. So the situation for the Tabamada becomes so dire that Kabayo also thought it's time, it's time to shed a spotlight on this, let people realize that there is a very fragile natural heritage treasure down here and that it has to be protected and, and appreciated. All right, last one, Chris, and I'd like to kind of close with the practical. So based on all your work, and it's extensive about the human mind and body and our potential, I wonder if you can just translate a few of your best thoughts into maybe a simple framework for the rest of us. So what are, I'm going to say, two to five things that each of us can do to support our health and growth and support the people around us thinking about heroism? So Chris McDougall, a fool's guide, if you will, keeping it practical. There's a guy named Ken Clover. He was a hard rock miner in Colorado who created the Little Trail 100. And every year, he sends the runners off with the same phrase. Looks him in the eye. He goes, you know what? You're tougher than you think you are. You can do more than you think you can. And to me, that's it, man. You're tougher than you think you are. You can do more than you think you can. Just get out there and try it. Well, I hope you enjoyed that at least half as much as I did, because if you did, you had a great time. So, from beautiful questions last week to this week, the mountains of Crete. Well, next week on Rule Breaker Investing, it's the triumph of the city. Celebrated Harvard economist Ed Glazer will be joining me to discuss his wonderful book, Triumph of the City, and more broadly, the power of cities, not just in our world today, but throughout time, but in particular, how magnetic it seems as social creatures ourselves, we all seem to be conglomerating around the city. We'll hear about that with Ed next week. So, if you haven't already read Triumph of the City, I highly recommend you click a button on the internet, read it electronically, or maybe you have a paper copy. I did tell you about this a few weeks ago. I like to give our listeners an opportunity to read ahead, so maybe you've already finished Triumph of the City, but it will be a compelling talk with Ed next week. And then after, just to close it out, we'll be talking with one of the authors of Crucial Conversations, which is one of my favorite books. I think the kind of work that everybody should read. I don't care how old you are or how young, what city or nation you live in, your gender, your background. We all, I think, could be better at the crucial conversations we have over the course of our lives. So, Triumph of the City coming up next week, followed by Crucial Conversations to close it out. All right. Happy reading. Happy August. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.